if we try to stick to the plan, a lot of beautiful stuff that appears along the way uh, gets missed. And so I feel that most things um, that way. That's why I feel like most of the practice that I need is uh, doing nothing, is not interfering, is to sit there for 40 minutes, for 30 minutes, for 10 minutes, for one minute, and just not be doing anything, to just um, agree to let stuff happen. Because I think that's the sickness that most of us suffer from the worst. Yuval Idotal is a poet, meditation teacher, and translator of modern and ancient Buddhist writings. He's the academic director of Psychodharma, the Israeli school for the Buddhist study of the mind, and works with therapists studying at the Mindfulness Clinic at the Be'er Shiva Mental Health Center. He has been teaching Buddhism and Buddhist meditation primarily in the Zen tradition for 20 years and leads retreats 50 to 60 days of the year. He is the author of four books, including Buddhism, a short introduction, and has translated nine others. His most recent work is a translation of and commentary on 130 Tang period poems called My Heart Startled by the Moon, co-authored with Yuav Rappaport. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Hey, Yuval, when I was doing research on you, I was struck by this, um, it almost seems like you were confronted by something and maybe you don't even really know what it was or you didn't know then, but you were, you were living in Florence studying to be an architect and someone had uh, given you a copy of the Tao Te Ching or you got your hands on a copy of, a, of the Tao and there was something in the text that just hit you so profoundly, it, it made you reevaluate your your career path. And I'm wondering if, if you can say what a little, you know, a little bit about what that was that, that hit you so heavily, so, so deeply. Uh, I think it was a combination of several things and I'm not sure how, um, how accurate my memory is uh, looking back so many years ago, but the story I tell myself <laughs> <laughs> is um that what happened is that I realized that um, I chose architecture uh, mathematically. I was uh, thinking that on the one hand, I like the, the material joys of life. I like fast cars. I like good food and restaurants. I love sex. Everything that is pleasurable is, uh, is and pleasing. I love art. 
Uh, I love music. And I thought that these things cost a lot of money. That was my thought back then. And uh, on the other hand, I knew I was very artistically oriented all my life. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure at which point in my life I read uh, uh, The Fountainhead. Oh my gosh. You know, the family, I think it's the it's the book that most people read and go try to be architects afterwards. You know, Howard Rourke stands naked at the cliff and the drama, you know. And um and I, I realized after reading the Tao Te Ching or during the reading, I realized that um the motivation was so calculated it made me um made me sick. <laughs> oh, wow. it, it 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 felt like um like the the last thing I'd suggest anyone to do uh in choosing things in life, you know, you know, choose the pros and cons and all that. That's something I'd never tell someone. Uh I'd probably ask someone, you know, what's in your heart? What's your heart tell you? And um um reading the Tao Te Ching, I realized that I had a lot, a lot to learn. And that uh, I felt very crude. It felt like uh, something needs to be refined. I wrote a 14-page letter to my dad. He was, uh, he was funding half my studies. It was like a matching fund. <laughs> For every dollar I put up, he puts up a dollar. Uh, so it was the first person I felt obligated to write to when I decided to quit school and go study Chinese to read the Tao Te Ching in the original. Uh, and I wrote to him that um, in Be'er Sheva that you mentioned before in the bio, uh, when you enter Be'er Sheva, there are rows of uh, houses that look like trains that are uh, that lack any kind of inspiration they're terrible they, they look really ugly and i wrote to him that uh if i continue studying as i am the buildings that i'll build will look like that like the buildings when you enter Be'er Sheva. and uh uninspired and not alive and i think i need to study myself first for a while before i go and try to build stuff in the world uh so it's been a while <laughs> Have, haven't built anything since then but uh but 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 it's been a, a a good ride so far and so i'm just so impressed that you you read the dao and you there was something in it that was so powerful for you you were you decided to to go try to figure out how to read this in chinese in Listen, direct, like, it, it, it felt as if someone had entered my mind and read all the things that I felt and could never put into words and that the guy who did that has been dead for like 3,000 years. Mm. So that, that it was a bomb to the head. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, but you didn't go to China. You came back to Israel, yeah, and uh, did a master's in uh, religious studies. 
I, I began with a bachelor's in uh, East Asian studies, mm-hmm. where I studied Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, the religious studies. Right. And then you you got into this Buddhist meditation. You you're mostly, it seems like, in the Zen tradition, but you've you've traveled, <laughs> you've traveled through some of the other traditions, and I'm wondering. Yeah. You know what? What it was that uh, was in Buddhism that really drew you, uh, that drew you in, as part of I guess the completion of that journey, or you know, the path towards. You know, it. Zen is kind of like the bastard son of Taoism meeting Buddhism in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the story of the birth of Zen. You know, Bodhidharma coming from India to China and. Uh, and realizing that uh, his kind of Buddhism is really unknown there, and they practice a very different type of Buddhism there, where you accumulate good karma and stuff like that that he doesn't relate to at all. And uh, he he goes and sits in a cave for like nine years trying to figure out how to present Buddhism in a useful way to Chinese people. Um, if if you look at it academically rather than this story of the tradition, then what most I think uh, researchers would uh, would think happened there is that there was a meeting of cultures and and the very I don't know how to call it very OCD kind of uh, stricken um, Indian Buddhism with the very uh, well-ordered lists of things you should do in a very specific order meets the very crazy tradition of Taoist monks in, uh, in, in forest retreats. And somehow these two streams connect together and they form something that I think is very unique in the history of, of spiritual traditions in, in general. I, I can't find any, any equivalent to that anywhere. It's like the most, um, uh, how, how can I call it? The most um, reserved tradition, meeting the craziest tradition, and finding a common base. And so I got in through that door, through the door of, uh, of Zen that, that is kind of a mixture of Taoist ideas with very traditional Buddhist ideas, and um, you know the same the same teacher in Zen that uh, from from which the the, the order of uh, of of uh, of daily life in Zen monasteries um, is the same guy who said when he was asked what Zen is, he said when I'm tired I go to sleep and when I'm hungry I eat. And and there didn't seem to be a contradiction in Zen between these two factors. That on the one hand, this guy's you know he's very spontaneous and he responds to things that come up in a very natural way, like any other person, only um, devoted to it. And he says that that's his Zen. And on the other hand, he tells you to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to do the dishes at that time and to do that and this at this time. And you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And um, usually these things, you don't find them in one person. You find 
these two people arguing. And and I think I love that combination uh, of of um, sane and insane at the same breath. So how has that appeared in your life? How like how do you see your that charting a, the path for your practice life and and also for I guess for the people that you teach? Like why that one? I um I, I, I try to teach people not to chart a path. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I read this line. Actually, I, I want to read this because maybe this is a good time to go to this. I saw okay. you sent me this thing that said, um, "Oh, let me just see which which set of notes it's on here." Uh, um, at the core of everything I teach, there is an assumption that most uh, most Buddhist practices entail a healthy degree of laziness of sorts. Yeah, and, and that. This premise, it's this premise that most things that go wrong in life go wrong not because not enough effort is exerted, but rather because too much effort is applied. Yeah. And I feel like that's so different <laughs> than a lot of like the hard training that we see. And you're making this appeal for laziness. I. <laughs> I was like, justify yourself in the okay. face of all this hard practice. Okay, this is very easy to comprehend, okay. actually. Consider Buddha nature for a second, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. If I, if I try to demonstrate Buddha nature, what Buddha nature is, uh, on the physical level, suppose I get cut. Yeah. A cut in my arm. Yeah. Buddha nature is all these unseen mechanisms that work together to heal the wound. Okay. Be it a physical wound, a mental wound. Um, and basically what you have to do is not to interfere in the process of healing that's going on there. If you scratch it, it doesn't go well. If you try and put it together yourself, it doesn't go well. You don't know how to send um, cells anywhere. You don't know how to build how to how to apply plasma in a, in a way that it builds tissues and you don't know how to repair skin. Buddha nature knows how to do all these amazing things. So uh, I have all these amazing mechanisms um, working inside me, outside me. Um, you know, they they work the seasons, they work the sky, they move the clouds. Everything goes well until you get up. And actually, you have to get up in order for that to get up. It doesn't get up all by itself. You have to really disturb the wound from being healed in order for it to not get healed. And um, and I think the same about the, the human heart. I think if you look sincerely at, at stuff in your life and you try and understand what the Buddha meant when he said um, that clinging is what messes everything up uh, and brings about so much suffering. Clinging is an action that you feel you have to do something. You cannot go on without this or that, or you cannot have this and that in your life. And you feel it's either a, um, a definite yes or a definite no, and you have to interfere. 
And I think you don't have to interfere so much. When I look at stuff that you, you, you talked before in our uh, conversation, before we started the interview, you said something about your spiritual life. And you said that you're trying to tune in to, I don't remember the exact words, but if I understood you correctly, you're trying to tune in to a more uh, refined tune that there is inside. And it's very difficult to, to listen to it. I think it's the most difficult to listen to that subtle sound inside or outside or in situations that tells you what the right thing to do is uh, when you're talking at the same time or interfering in any way and your ability to just listen to what uh, is going on. And there's a lot going on all the time to listen to. So I think uh, we, we should really be uh, much lazier, all of us. I think we're all control freaks. We're crazy. All of us. Everyone I know. I, I have no one I can point to that is outside this, uh, this formula that I see everywhere. Uh, that whenever something goes wrong, it's because there's just too much control there and not enough listening. And I see it in myself every day, hundreds of times every day, that I screw something up because I've been too much on it rather than letting it be. And we all know how to say let it be. We're not very good at it, though. Mm. So that's, that's, uh, that compounds something like 80% of my, uh, my practice life. When I sit in meditation, I do nothing. Um, um, you know, it's, it's got an impressive name. It's called Shikantaza. So it sounds Japanese and spiritual and all that. But it's basically sitting and doing nothing. And uh, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's so funny how like the will for attainment is so strong when you're just sitting on the cushion hoping yeah. to let it all go. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think that's Buddhism's fault. I think the Buddhist tradition has been very bad at not trying to sell its product. And I think Buddhism shouldn't press so hard on trying to sell the product, you know, the end game. Uh, I think the, you know, when you read the Heart Sutra, for example, that's the most... Uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it's the most read sutra in the world. There's no sutra that's being recited more than the Heart Sutra, and the mantra of the Heart Sutra tells you, uh, "Listen, you're already there." You remember the sutra? Yeah, the, oh yeah, the, I chant the, it every day. The mantra? Yeah, gone, gone, completely gone. Yeah, you know, Bodhisvaha. Yeah, you've already crossed the river, dude. You're there. Yeah. Quit, <laughs> quit the effort. It's it's okay. You should. Uh, that sutra actually tells you. It says, you know, lay your mind to rest. You're already there, and stop working so hard at trying to reach the other shore. You're on the other shore. There's a there's a funny Zen story that says the same thing, um, basically about a. You probably know this one about the uh, the Zen student that's walking on a bank of a river and he sees a Zen master on the other side and yells, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he, the Zen teacher laughs and says, you're on the other side of the river. <laughs> and 
I'd never heard that one before. That's a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. And I think that's that's a point that's being sorely missed in 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 two thousand five hundred years of tradition. I think we've mostly missed that point. Trying to achieve stuff and working very hard at it. Uh, whereas the way I understand Buddhism, this, that's just me, uh, is that I, I, I feel that when I don't work as hard, uh, then things that are not in my hands take over and do a much better job than I do. Uh-huh. And that includes thought. When I, when I put too much of an effort into thinking, my thought uh, goes wrong. And when I put too much effort in trying to make a relationship work because I've analyzed it and I think the analysis is good, then that's that's basically the beginning of the death of it. Mm. Um, rather than, I, I think what, what Buddha was trying to, to teach or what I'd like to hear him teach, what I choose to hear him teach, is that he teaches us how to, dance with stuff how to make love with stuff mm-hmm. how to how, you know this conversation we talked before the conversation you you described like four mm-hmm. different uh streams you'd like to us to move in uh, but the conversation has a life of its own you know and uh, if we try to stick to the plan a lot of beautiful stuff that appears along the way uh gets missed and so I feel that most things um, that way. That's why I feel like most of the practice that I need is uh, doing nothing, is not interfering, is to sit there for 40 minutes, for 30 minutes, for 10 minutes, for one minute, and just not be doing anything. To just um, agree to let stuff happen. Because I think that's the sickness that most of us suffer from the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, I think something like 20% of my practice life is uh, trying to consciously concentrate on stuff, doing shamatha, doing vipassana, doing sati, doing um, you know compassion exercises and, and specific work that's trying to develop some kind of muscle uh, that's underdeveloped. But I think most of the problem is that there's this one muscle that we've used so hard and so much that it's taken over everything else, and that's control. We're just control freaks. Uh, And I think the the best way to not be a control freak is to stay out of it, to sit and stay out of it for a while. And very, very slowly, with very... uh, small but important, I think, um, uh, progress. Uh, I think perhaps at times I become less of a control freak. You know, I think it's, a, it's the, I, the conversation um, piece about, you know, the one we had before this conversation we're having now is actually, for me, it's actually, it's a, good metaphor because it's mm. true. I, I did research and I created these four sort of streams that uh, allowed me to feel like we could have this conversation. And if we got stuck somewhere, I would know where to go. 
Exactly. But at the same time, I want the conversation to have a, a life of its own. And the and uh, at that point, you just sort of, you wait to see what is said before you actually figure out what the question is. Yep. So there's this part of me that um, I agree with you in the sense of we have to be, I, I don't know if I would use the word lazy, but certainly less, uh, less of a controlling... <laughs> power on it but I, but there's this other part of me that's like i don't want people to like walk into the dharma room and be like oh i'm just here you know it's like no there's actually a ton of stuff that you do bef- to get you ready so that um you- i like beginning uh, uh practice with beginners with people who've never met the dharma before yeah i really like to begin with sit and do nothing <laughs> let's see how that let's see how that goes yeah and and People so easily and so immediately grasp uh, the idea that they're um, that the problem is not that they're not in control of their mind, mm-hmm. but the problem is is that they're constantly trying to be in control of their mind. Yeah, that you give the man a rest. You tell him, okay, listen, you got a license now to sit and do nothing. Just rest for a while. Do nothing. Do nothing inside, outside. You have a license to be lazy. Yeah. Everyone's told you that being lazy is bad. Here, being lazy is good. So sit and try to be lazy for a while. And no one succeeds. (laughs) No one does. (laughs) Everyone has to do something, has to fight with something, fight for something, apply some effort in order to reach something, to achieve something, to gain something, be it peace and quiet, be it um, an orderly line of thought, be it uh, some noise on the outside that's disturbing them. You have to do something. Something is scratching. You got to scratch it. You don't have to scratch it. Mm -hmm. If you scratch it, it scratches more. Mm -hmm. You don't scratch it, it goes away faster. Mm -hmm. And and it's very difficult, I think, for all of us to to understand that. And, And... and I'm 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 gonna uh, put my foot down on the whole laziness thing. He said, <laughs> I, he, said I, he said I don't know if I'm uh, if I'm gonna call it laziness, but maybe this and maybe that. No, no, let's let's call it laziness and and try and understand for a second why the word laziness seems such an abomination to us. Oh, I know why. Huh? <laughs> why? Well, I mean, I'm from I'm I'm New England, born and raised. Like the, we're not a lazy people, just like by you know what pro- Protestants? Y- yeah, these sort of New England, pro- a particular type of Protestant. This New England. Well, like if style. you don't work hard enough, God won't love you. That's He'll you, you. The cultural. We don't say it that way, but culturally, there that's definitely in there. That's basically it. So yeah. it's the 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 cricket and the ant, right? <laughs> Oh, I don't know that the grasshopper in the yeah. the grasshopper in the end. I don't know that story. It's uh, it's uh, I think it's either La Fontaine, Kilov, or or both of them. Uh, it's a story about this. Uh, all summer, the ant she works and works and works. She gathers wood and she gathers food, and the cricket he sings and dances and plays his fiddle uh, all the summer. And then winter comes, 
And the aunt is sitting at her home. She's warm. She's cozy. She's got all the food she needs. And the grasshopper, he knocks on the door. And uh, she opens the door and he says, listen, I'm, I'm very hungry and I'm cold. Could you let me in so I get warm a little bit and eat something maybe? And she says, all summer when we worked, you were lazying about. You were singing and dancing and playing your fiddle. So now you go dance and sing and play your fiddle in the snow. And that's a story that there is not one Israeli child that hasn't been reared on this story. <laughs> and, if I, and if I analyze this story, then what the story basically says is a couple of things. It says that uh, singing, dancing, and playing a fiddle isn't work. Yeah. And being not work, uh, the punishment that you deserve, if that's what you do, is to die in the snow in the wintertime, not receive warmth and not receive food. That's a hell of a sanction yeah. for being lazy. And the, the, the figure in this story that we should identify with as kids is this aunt that has no compassion. Yeah. And who judges a person or a cricket or a grasshopper yeah. on how hard he worked and according to how hard she thinks he worked, she'll either let him live or, um, or doom him to death. And I think that's a very twisted way to teach kids um, about life. And I think, I think that's a, it's a problem everywhere now. We've all adopted these values that we should all work really, really, really hard. You see people slaving every day, morning until evening. They don't have time for their families. They don't have time for hobbies. They don't have time to just lie around and do nothing. Even if you lie around and do nothing, you have to occupy yourself with something. Mm. And, and I, I think we're lacking a lot of rest. Most people I know, maybe 90% of the people I know, I look at their eyes and they're swollen from lack of sleep and from lack of rest. And we just don't allow it. We don't allow it to each other. Mm -hmm. we're, we're very unkind to each other in that way. Um, because, you know, when you look at a person's um, uh, schedule and you see a week full of stuff, you think, wow, this guy's successful. Yeah. That, that's, that's twisted. Yeah. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, but I, I feel like this is related uh, in the sense that you also teach uh, therapists who are working um, at the mindfulness clinic in uh, Beersheva um, Mental Health Center. And I'm wondering, and you've also uh, worked with this group of therapists who are doing um, uh, sort of help with the public either for free or for a donor base, a donation base, a gift based uh, fee, mm, mm. and I'm wondering if there's some sort of connection that you're seeing between, you know, the, your draw to working with people who are trying to help, you know, the mental health of our cultures, and and the story that you were just saying about, you know, this lack of compassion in society, the value only being on work, and uh, if there's some sort of connection in there between. Um, you know, what you're trying to bring to the world through the Buddhist teachings. 
Okay, so for one thing, I grew up with a mom who she suffered half her life from bipolar disorder. And she was in and out of mental uh, facilities all her, all her life. Uh, the mental health institutions did very, very little to help my mom. Uh-huh. She was usually locked up. And uh, whenever they, they'd let her out and try to resolve her issues, there was very little they could do. And that maybe at the beginning made me read a lot of books on psychology and psychotherapy, trying to understand what she needs. And as time passed, uh, I realized that it's not that the doctors are not doing things by the book and that maybe I should find a place that's doing a better job. The thing that struck me the most was that the people who were most compassionate with my mom never studied psychology or psychotherapy. They were the, the lowliest workers in these facilities, the lowest paid people, the people who, you know, who need to drag her down the hall. They were the most compassionate people there. And whenever uh, therapy worked with her, it was because there was a warm person there, not because there was this good technique that someone applied on her. You know, looking back today, uh, I wish I had back then all the wisdom that Buddhism gave me about how to help people and in such conditions. Um, because the one thing that wasn't there was no one accepted or respected uh, these waves going up and down. And today, when I work with therapists, uh, you know, therapy has gone a very long way since then, uh, since my mom was young and sick. And um, today, I watch with great pleasure how um, people, therapists today, uh, can at times respect the waveform or the seasonal form of, of manic depression or of depression. You know, a person depressed, uh, when I was young, the only thing to do was to push him out of bed and get him to do something, which is sometimes good. Sometimes that's a very good attitude to depression. Sometimes a very good attitude to depression is to leave the blinds shut and let a person rest for a while. A while might be two months, might be three months. Sometimes we're very tired and we need to rest a long while. Uh, you know EQ, the Zen teacher, 15th century Zen teacher and Zen poet? An amazing guy. And he, in one of his poems, he says, uh, um, you can't take the petals from cherry blossoms, put them in the ground, and expect cherry blossoms to grow out of that. Only spring does that. Hmm. In another poem he has, he says, um, break the, um, the branch of the cherry tree. You will not find blossoms in there. And I think a lot of what we try to do, um, humans, when we try to help each other, be it therapists 
or just everyday people trying to help each other, a lot of what we try to do is reflected in, in, in these two poems. Uh, we try to, you know, to, to, to put, to make something grow when we want it to grow or to make something stop when we want it to stop. And things have their own seasons. And we, if it doesn't work for us, then we become even more, uh, I don't know, exhaustive. How do you, how do you, is that a word in yeah. English? Mm-hmm. Exhaustive. And, and we try to break the branch in order to get to the, to the, these cherry blossoms, these beautiful cherry blossoms that we imagine because we've seen cherry blossom. This is a cherry branch. This should blossom. This should have blossoms on it. So we break it and you don't find anything there when you break it. So I think a lot of patience and compassion grows very naturally from understanding uh, seasons, from understanding that the, the, the human heart has seasons as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Yuval Idotal encouraging and helpful for your practice. If you speak Hebrew, please visit the Psychodharma website at pdharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, dot C-O dot I-L. And if you can't speak Hebrew, you can feel free to contact Yuval at Facebook by just looking for his name, Yuval Ido Tal, which is Y-U-V-A-L-I-D-O-T-A-L. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, uh, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. 